It's time to hit the brakes. Welcome to Swerve South. I'm Jamie Harker. I'm the director of the Sarah Isom Center for Women and Gender Studies at the University of Mississippi. Today, I have two very special guests. Joining me are two historians. Uh, first is Hillary Colson, who's a visiting assistant professor of gender studies at the University of Mississippi. And second is LaShonda Mims, who's an assistant professor of history at Middle Tennessee State University. Hillary, LaShonda, welcome to Swerve South. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, thank you. I'm excited. We're doing this in the wild world of virtual recording. We're hoping it's going to work out. I hope someday I can invite y'all to come down to our recording studio where we get into what we call the confessional booth and really, really pour the tea. But today we'll do our best to do it virtually. So what I was hoping we could discuss today is season four of The Crown. It's gotten lots of attention, but there's so many interesting feminist issues in terms of this season that I, I wanted to get people with deeper historical knowledge than I have to kind of set the stage. So the three figures I have in mind to talk about are first, Margaret Thatcher, secondly, Diana, and then thirdly, Camilla. Um, and I think all of these figures in the season have some really interesting perspectives on thinking about gender um, and public presence in gender. Um, so I guess to start, I wanna throw this out to my historians. Can you give us a kind of brief introduction to the, the historical importance of Margaret Thatcher, a little bit about Margaret Thatcher as a, as a figure. Well, I can, I can jump in a little bit here. I mean, she's a very important figure, of course, in the, the 1980s in uh, Britain because she's the first uh, female prime minister. Uh, so that's a really huge deal, of course. And what I really like about the crown is that season to season, you see prime ministers come, you see prime ministers go, and she comes in and she is a, a force and it ends up being that a good amount of the season is focused on her relationship with the queen and then her relationship with, you know, those around her and her building her cabinet and such. So she's an incredibly important historical figure and she's very controversial um, I, I've seen a lot of people very upset by her portrayal because you kind of empathize with her or that's what they want you to do. But most people were really unhappy with her as prime minister. You know, she's kind of ruthless. Um, there was a lot of economic strife that happened during the 1980s and her cabinet was not, and her, you know, leadership, she was not really supportive of people who were struggling really hard. And I think that we see this most present in the episode Fagan. Um, but, you know, I'll let you jump in, LaShonda, if you want. But she's important just because she's the first woman. Right. And I, I would say that I think in terms of setting up her uh, un unpopularity, her problematic persona, her identity with the working class and, and labor in the country. Um, you're right to say that episode of Fagan is, is really telling. I appreciated the various angles to let us know um, what that looked like from the worker standpoint. But also, um, I spent some time last night reviewing the apartheid debate between her and Elizabeth and um, I felt like there were some out scenes where um, <clears throat> they were showing the anti-apartheid protests in the streets of um, 
London and and in the areas near where Elizabeth is. And the music and the background sort of put me in the moment of the 1980s, both the, the ska music revolution, but also how I was a person who was incredibly taken with the anti-apartheid movement as an undergraduate. And so this hit home for me. And, and if I'm honest, I think about it more in a personal way than I do as a historian and, and my perceptions of that anti-apartheid moment. Um, and I didn't know enough to hate Thatcher as much as I hated all leadership because you two told me to, because I did everything Bono said in the 19... 19- <laughs> at that time in my life. Um, But I should say that it was very clear to me as someone who was not clued in historically at the time and in going forward, hasn't continued to think that much about Thatcher, that she's bad. And I hope we can talk later, though, about this question of sympathetic portrayals of women who are problematic, because I have I have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. I mean, with uh, the whole series of The Crown, really. I mean, it's a very pro-monarchy series. And we've seen, you know, just in the past week, how troubling that is with the interview between Meghan Markle and Oprah and Harry, right? Is that, uh, you know, trying to portray these people as like, you you trying to empathize with them. The show does a really great job in trying to make you do that. But then when you step back from it, you know, as a historian or as just somebody who's observing things, you go, why do I feel sorry for them? You know, it's kind of, an, it's an important thing to discuss. And then especially with Margaret Thatcher, when you know how cruel and how oppressive some of those policies were that she supported and how hurtful it was to so many people in the laboring class in the 1980s, but then somehow you walk away from an episode, you know, when her son's missing and you, you somehow feel sorry for her that her son's missing or when she's in these, uh, situations where she's amongst high class, upper class people, you know, she's at Balmoral and she's kind of being made fun of because she doesn't know how to dress or she doesn't know how to play the games. Um, And she kind of, you know, puts herself as, well, I'm a member of the working class, but she was incredibly oppressive to them too. So I think that the series is really interesting because it humanizes every person Um, in a way that it makes me kind of uncomfortable because what I know outside of that series, does that make sense? Yeah. And I want to talk more about that because that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure that I would say it's a pro monarchy series, but I, but I know why you would say that because everyone's being humanized in a particular way, but I don't necessarily think that they're all being endorsed. And that, that Malaro episode you mentioned is one of them. You leave that episode thinking that the entire royal family are horrible snobs who are completely insular and all they care about is killing animals. You know what I mean? Like it's like, and, and sort of being in their little insular world. I think it does so to make you sympathize with Margaret Thatcher, but there's a moment you just think this entire family just needs to be thrown out and go to be on their estates on their own. And it, it, I love the way the series keeps switching your sympathies, right? Like you think you know where you are, and you know, and that same episode when when I think Margaret Thatcher's being humanized because she, her son is missing, she's also a monster because of the way she treats her daughter, as a weak afterthought, right? The way she privileges her son, and the fact that it could do it at the same time is kind of remarkable. It's hard to do that kind of dual focus, and it keeps a lot of those um, shifts. You think you know where you stand, and then it shifts the ground on you. 
Season three, if you watched it, spent so much time making Charles deeply sympathetic. Um, and we'll get to this later, but oh my goodness, in season four, he is couldn't be more unsympathetic. And and I, I find that kind of shifting. It's hard to know where, where to place this larger sympathies of the crown because of that. Um, let me pause and let you guys jump in on that because I do think Margaret Thatcher is on the one hand a self-made woman from you know a very modest background and some of those encounters back and forth with Queen Elizabeth are really sharp in the way it's critiquing that and yet as you mentioned she's also invested in power invested in transforming the country in a way that is not to the benefit of the working classes um, does it capture her complexity or do you think it goes too far in making her sympathetic so this is one of the things that I'm going to go, I'm famous for going very far out on limbs. <laughs> so stay with me. I'll come back to the treat. Um, I have a bit of a Margaret Thatcher, Phyllis Schlafly comparison to make here. Um, and I famously and, and maybe problematically to a lot of folks like to rehabilitate in some people's minds, Phyllis Schlafly. But that's not the exact right word. I think it's what you say, Jamie. It's adding complexity and recognizing, like Hillary said, this is the first woman prime minister. And she reminds me in the scenes where she's doing her food prep for her, the men, the, the, the white men that surround her in the last season when Elizabeth awards her her medal, you know, she makes the point of being surrounded by these gray men, right? And her ability to be over there and making this dish and throwing eggs in the pan, and it's not my best work, but here it is, and let's get on to the work of the country. And this just reminds me of the way Schlafly walks these amazing lines. And and so I, I dearly love Schlafly. And when I say that to my students, they're like, no. And I'm like, but you have to understand, I appreciate independent of the monster she was for feminists. Um, similarly, Thatcher was a monster in, in a variety of ways, but I appreciate the line she walks to be a conservative woman in the 1980s and play the conservative, my hair looks perfect with my Elnet hairspray. I love that, that spraying scene. You know, she walks that line in such a remarkable way. Is it truly accurate? I don't know. This is a question I ask the whole time I watch The Crown. <laughs> like, but I love the portrayal. And if you saw Gillian Anderson in Sex Education over this past year and compare that performance to this, that woman is a master. I never understood or appreciated how amazing she is on screen. Yeah, she's incredible. I mean, I really loved Gillian Anderson's performance because like you said, I mean, if you look at her character and say like the X-Files or Sex Education, and then you just see this huge transformation, um, it's remarkable to see. And it's important, I think, to point out too, that she's cast in this role and she's really, to me, I think she was perfect for the role, but that her partner, Peter Morgan, is the show creator. Um, so I thought that that was kind of an interesting, the way that she ended up being cast, but then it wasn't to me, it wasn't like a favoritism thing. It was like, she was really good for the role. Um, and LaShonda, you say something funny about, you know, you wondering about, is this real or is this accurate the whole time you're watching it? And I pause the show every time I'm watching it, like 15 times and I'm Googling 
know, did this happen? Did that happen? Right. Because I am not an expert at all about British history and especially in the 1980s. Um, And so I learn a lot when I watch it because I don't just take, you know, what's happening there is like, okay, this is just truth Bible, but I stop and I'm like, okay, now let me research labor in the 1980s in Britain or, you know, whatever the case, like, did this really happen? There's a lot of really good resources out there. I think that that's one of the reasons I like the show so much is because it entertains you, but then it also entices you to kind of go and do your own research on the topic. So that's really neat. That's a great way to put it. And I always say that watching these kinds of shows with a historian is brutal for the family member that may not be a historian. Um, although my my wife has just given in and said, pause and research, you know, <laughs> tell me what happened. And it's not my area in any way, shape or form. And again, I relate to it more on on being a Gen Xer and being in the 1980s as a young person more than I do as a historian. And so um, when the part of the reason I'm, I'm chatting about the crown today is because I spoke to another friend, a mutual friend that I have with Jamie. And I said, you know, I was three episodes in and I had to stop and I started the whole series over. <laughs> I went all the way back because I needed to know more about Dickie and I felt like I lost his storyline. And so it is complicated in a way that I can't think of many other shows being complicated. And you're right, Jamie, that this fourth season and what it's done for complicated women, um, I could watch again and again and again. So the idea of the complicated women, I like that I think that could be a good segue to talking about the relationships between all of these women. Um, Jamie, like what direction do you want to take it in for character talking? Well, all I want to, before we move on, cause there's so much to say, I feel like Margaret Thatcher's hair could be its own character and probably needs its own Twitter feed. I mean like the hair alone was this sort of like creation and Margaret Thatcher's hair was something, but like this version of Margaret Thatcher's hair was so much more. It's sort of like Marge Simpson's, hair like from a kid's perspective it was just beautiful and like it so represented the effort of creation of this version of women's leadership but it couldn't be feminine right it couldn't be weak and like you could see what a burden it was just by looking at the hair what that performance of putting on the margaret thatcher face and armor right the iron lady was every day um as messed up as it is and in some ways all of these you know, really hard line conservative stances she took would have proved that she wasn't a weak woman in a weird way. Like, I don't think it's just reducible to that, but I do wonder how much of that performance had to do with somehow constantly gender was every in everything she chose, even as she disavowed the importance of being a woman. So, you know, whether women's leadership is feminist leadership, you know, clearly not necessarily, but it's, but gender is everything. So, Let's talk about complicated women, because I think this is an interesting moment of shifting over. Do we want to talk a little bit more about the Elizabeth uh, Maggie tussles we see in season four? Because those were also really interesting. And I don't think they were simple to decide who was in the right and who was in the wrong. You know, I mean, on the one hand, you've got Queen Elizabeth standing up for the multiracial Commonwealth and appalled by what's happening in South Africa. On the other hand, as we know, again, from this recent 
interview, the monarchy is like way up to its neck in all of these same issues. And Margaret Thatcher calls out that hypocrisy pretty directly, I think, in interesting ways. Um, do you, does the, does the show seem to want us to take one position over another in terms of those debates between the two, or are we meant to understand them as worthy adversaries? So can I just say a little more about the hair? <laughs> that was a really great question. Please don't lose it. But that hair speaks to me on so many levels as a Southern woman. And um, growing up in the beauty shop with my mother who got the teasing set every week. And the, again, I mentioned it already, the big can of L'Oreal Elnet, that's higher class. We had the Aquanet. So there are levels of that spray. But it reminded me of Sally Field and um, um, oh, Steel Magnolias, right? Where she talks about her own football helmet of hair as she's headed to Shelby's wedding. And, um, you know, and watching that, we're thinking, oh, my God, because I mean, I don't know what Margaret Thatcher's stature was exactly. I've looked up pictures, but I believe Gillian Anderson in that character, her waist was smaller than the hair. I'm, I'm convinced that hair was a crown. And, and I think you're right to say it was a piece of the costume. And forgive me, now I've, I've totally derailed the conversation. No, no, that's okay. Hair is important. Well, you're talking about worthy adversaries, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Talk about worthy adversaries. So the idea about like the worthy adversary, I like what you said, LaShonda, that like her hair was a crown. So it's like she's walking in with this high, you know, hair and she ends up talking to the queen who would, you know, maybe wear a crown or something like that. That I think that they are set to be worthy adversaries when they talk with one another because I, there's like that poem that Margaret Thatcher just rattles off from her memory, um, which was such an important moment, I think, because the, the look on the queen's face is like the audacity of this woman. Like she's almost lecturing me about getting things done. I've been in this position for decades and she just comes in here and sits down um, and, and lectures me. But what I also find very interesting about these two women is they're the same age. Uh, you know, most times when you have prime ministers in previous seasons, they're older men. Um, you know, they kind of talk down to her a lot. Um, sometimes she has a good relationship with them. But for the first time in this season, you see two women head to head who are the same age, they have similar, I think, convictions in some ways. Um, but, you know, they go about life in just very different ways. And just in the ways that they mother, for example, you see lots of examples about that in the way that they lead, in the way that they speak. Um, and I think that there's a, I think that they, there's a respect between the two. I think mean, you can definitely see that. But they're at odds every, almost every episode. There's a lot of tension. So I think they did a really nice job teasing that out about just the nuance and complexity of that relationship. And it's not a cat fight. They're at right. odds. So who's the senior, as Elizabeth said? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to step on the other side. Go ahead. All I was going to say was that they're, they're, they're at odds, but it's not a cat fight. And so often when you have two women in positions of authority, the go-to in pop culture is to sort of see it as, oh, look at these silly, irrational women. Like it's it's set up in a way that they both demand respect, even if you don't agree with them. And, and they are in the end able to sort of recognize 
the sexism they see, even if that was not a primary public role for either of them, right? And so I, in that way, I do think the, the series is trying to make a kind of feminist conversation about women in power, even if these are not, neither of these are figures you would think would be spokespeople for this question. But whether they acknowledge it or not, this question of women's right to authority and how they're allowed to wield or not wield it is always at the heart of, of their struggles with each other and I think more broadly with the country. Is this a good pivot point to talk about another? Whether this is a, their worthy adversaries, I want to talk about, but let's let's shift if that's okay. And I want to talk about Diana and then about Camilla. Um, I this is something that's hard for me to be um, objective about because I, like you, Lashonda, was growing up under the spell of Diana, right? And you know, my mother stayed up all night to watch the royal wedding. Um, she was a from Canada and a huge Anglophile, like was, you know, was outraged by how my brothers were taught the Revolutionary War, like, because of course, that was not the right story. Like she was very much pro Britain. Um, and she loved the monarchy. So we grew up just being watching this. But I mean, Diana's star power, I, I think they tried to capture it, but I'm not sure even there, they got to the level of how Diana was able to kind of wield influence in the press, how beloved she was more broadly. Um, so I'm interested in what y'all thought about their portrayal. How did they do? Like bringing in Diana was a really risky moment for the series. When you go back to the 40s, people don't have their own memories of it. But coming to the fore now, there are people who would remember this. How do you think they did with Diana? I'm looking at you, Hillary. <laughs> okay. So I don't have memories of Diana. My first memory of Princess Diana was when she died. And that was the first time I had heard of her. My, I was very little and my mom turned on the television and we were doing a puzzle. And I remember her telling me all about, you know, what was going on because we were watching it on, you know, TV live, like the coverage of it. And so that was my first time ever hearing about her. Um, and I remember just being horrified and my grandmother called my mom and they were like, just so upset because they had grown through, you know, the, everything. They had been Anglophiles, I think, and following the monarchy and being, like you said, Jamie, I love that you say kind of under the spell of Diana. And so I became very interested in her and I've read lots of biographies and things. So I don't have personal memories, but from what I've read in the biographies, I think they did a really, really nice job in season four of showing Diana coming to be the beloved queen of people's hearts, as she says later in that panorama interview sometime in the 90s. So the period that's covered in season four, I think it's the 11 year period, you know, like 1980, I think to 1991, perhaps, um, might be a little like a little bit shifted, but it's it's the period, it's the 80s, right? And I don't know if her star power, it was big, but I think it got even bigger when her and Charles separated, right? Um, I mean, I think so. I think they did a really nice job of showing her, first of all, as a 16 year old girl, she's so young. And then she comes into this crazy family, basically at 19. She's very isolated. They do a really nice job, as tragic as it is, of covering her extreme anxiety of her eating disorder that she is trying to cope with this chaos, right? And she's isolated, she's lonely, she's mistreated. 
I saw her so many times in the series as being treated almost like a um, like an animal at the zoo that, you know, you cage up and then you take out to bring out to show people when you feel like it or something along those lines. Like it felt she was not treated as human. And it's that trip to Australia where you really start to see, oh, people like Diana, right? And then she gets more humanized. And then episodes beyond that, you start to, you slowly see her star power build. So I think they did a really nice job in the season of showing her as the shy, timid teenager, and then kind of morphing into this world-renowned celebrity. She was the most photographed woman of all time when she was, you know, in at the height of her popularity. So I think that seasons five and six will really, really bring that home. Right. I can't wait for five and six. And I have to say, I think, again, I wish that this wasn't all, you know, I want to sound more like a, a, a nerd, smart historian, but really I'm just a TV watcher who lived through some of this, but only paid attention in the ways that a young teenage person would pay attention <laughs> tangentially being irritated by some things. And so I say all that to say, I sort of, I remember the royal wedding. I was a young girl and I, I remember my cousins watching it and we were really fascinated. But I was less fascinated than they were. And I think I saw Diana as part of this cult of celebrity that I was trying to put aside. I was entering my goth phase and I was way too cool for like celebrity and glamour. And um, so that's my personal take. Watching Diana... Uh, as a character, I thought she came off as this silly, sort of irritating little girl who all of a sudden became sophisticated. And I think that is part of me having, you know, we are a product of our own memories that we create for ourselves. And I think that is a, that's part of me um, not ever seeing her as a young girl as only seeing her through the irritating media spotlight. Not that I didn't come to understand that she was brutalized by the media, but more that I never saw her outside of how the media portrayed her anyway. And so I never thought of her as anything but this glamorous Bob Mackie wearing stunner um, who was, you know, kind of like, I mean, it's not fair, but kind of like Elizabeth says to her when they have their like, you know, head to head about y'all need to like get your marriage straight. And, and, and she's, and, and, you know, when Elizabeth is like essentially telling Diana, you know, this is your job. It's not about love or, or fantasy. It's, it's what you do. And I, I mean, I think I thought the same thing, if I'm honest, I think I fell under the media spell as a, as a younger person. So watching it now, yes, it humanized for, you humanized her for me, of course, but it also, I found the impish, silly, flirty, you know, dancing to Freddie Mercury girl a little irritating. Um, and I don't think that has anything to do with saying this is bad. I think it means it was a really lovely portrayal because I was like, wait, this is like a glamour puss. Like, what is she doing? And so I think that was an important way for me as a viewer to see her. This is so interesting. 
And I think I'm realizing part of my spell was clearly like tomboy early celebrity crush on Diana is like this amazingly beautiful woman who just sort of appeared out of nowhere. I, there's no way I can separate, I think, like the unspeakability of like intense crushes on women, especially like celebrity women at that age, right before I was able to say it. Um, so in that way, you know, I was very much under her spell, um, I think from early on, even when she was still shy die. But one of the things I thought was so interesting about the way they portray her um, in the series, this is in some ways is the most literary ser series of all four crowns. And by that, I mean the symbolism in some of these episodes is so ponderous as to almost be like heavy handed. And I was thinking about what you were saying, Hillary. It's not just treating her as an animal. In that episode, they treat her as prey, right? When they are stalking that beautiful deer who's wounded and trying to survive, the parallels they draw between the wounded deer and their stalking of Diana to join the family are done so clearly in the visual shifts that she is set up from the first as someone who is being abused and entrapped, brought in as a breeder without having any understanding of what's looking at it. So that naivete is very much, I think, to the point in the way they're setting her up as someone who is, who is kind of groomed into this role without any idea of what's to come for her. Um, and I think in terms of like symbolism, it was really masterfully constructed. I was thinking about how much more care they were giving to that kind of symbolic framing of those scenes than any of the seasons before. Um, and I think that continues all the way through. Now, what I want to talk about is that framing of her as like the tragic, like, you know how it ends and they set her up as the start as almost a like, destined doomed figure a figure who is going to end up no other way than dying tragically killed by the crown i think they they set that up in a really heavy-handed way um in an interesting way i think for me what what i thought about was i never thought of diana as a victim um and and i'm interested in how invested the series is in that and also how invested i think a lot of the narrative is in that and of course they go back to her um, her book, right? Where she talks about bulimia and how she fell. But what they don't really talk about is how masterfully she got that story out without ever getting shown by it, right? Like, like, and a lot of the stories about how she got the secret tapes to Andrew Morton to write it, that was like the most devastating takedown of the royal family ever done. And she was able to say, oh, I never spoke with him because she had a friend record her and secretly ship the tapes to them, right? When you know in the end that she was absolutely behind every image of that and very much using those touches to get sympathy and to turn them against the crown. This woman was not a victim. And I think if we only read her that way, you don't understand the star power that she had. And I, I think as much as they talk about it, that actress does not capture the way she commanded a room and the way she was able to use that power in a broader sense. And, and you can see it as, you know, kind of superficial or destructive, but I think there was a, there's an agency to her that I didn't feel like this season captured. All right, let me stop talking and see what y'all think about that. I think you can hold both things. I think that she can be both a victim and somebody who's very strong and who fought back against the people who were, you know, kind of like she was their prey because I do love that episode, the Balmoral episode where you have that imagery of the injured stag, the most, the prized stag, right? The 14 pointer. And you do see very, it's very heavy handed. Like you said, like they're very clearly hunting this young woman. And so I think she is a victim in the sense that 
her age because she was a teenager. I mean, to think how back to when I was 19 or something, right? I mean, like she was groomed. She was preyed upon. She was selected for her virginity. She was selected because she was an aristocrat. She was selected in a way that to me, they, she was a victim of them because they hunted her down. Um, but I think she's both that and a fighter. And I don't think that they saw that coming. I think that, you know, her, the very first few years, they do a nice job of showing just how isolated and lonely and distraught she was because she was a victim. But then she just comes back at them. It, I love that you said that it was like the biggest takedown that she's like sending these tapes out and stuff. I mean, she grows up with them. She grows up in the midst of this really toxic environment and she grows into this really strong woman, a very strong, powerful figure. And I think she draws her power from her stardom because, you know, the queen says something to her in an episode like, you know, I think you're kind of playing to everybody. It seems like you're enjoying this a little too much. And she says, you know what? I am enjoying it. And she owns that. And I think that that's where you get this moment where she's drawing her power and her strength and her resolve from the people who support her, which are absent in the very beginning. And when she kind of draws up this crowd of people who love and admire her, she becomes you know, formidable because of that support, because she's certainly not getting that support from her husband or her family. So I, I think that you can kind of say she's both. And, and I think they do a nice job of, of fleshing that out for us as we watch season four. I think what was hard for me, and so I relate to what you say, Jamie, is that, again, I was victim to, not victim, since we're using that word in a really meaningful way. I, 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 I looked at fashion magazines. I, I followed the media as a young girl and I only saw Diana in her star power and in her fancy dresses. And so having her portrayed, and again, I just found her irritating. I mean, I'm going to be honest in the show, not, not in the show, the scenes where she's like, with her side smile and her oh, Charles, like, I just found that like, I'm like, that's not who you are. You know? <laughs> I just, it didn't ring true for me. But I think that's just me, rando Southern white woman watching this, you know, thinking, this is how I experienced you. And I experienced you as what you are saying, Hillary, as the groom, as what they trained her to be. And so that speaks to the masterful creation of only letting her become international in the ways that they wanted her to. And when she began to step outside of that, like her visit to the, the uh, hospital in Harlem and hugging the young AIDS patient, and they're all like, Whoa, what have you done? You know, and Jamie, you could not have been smarter, even though I know it was an accident for setting this up this week after the bombshell interview, right? And, and seeing that moment of someone in the royal family hugging um, a suffering AIDS victim, a, a Black person, and having it 
uh, it was not even happening in the United States at that time, right? And so um, that's where I think you see her become masterful. But I did not buy on that same trip to New York. And again, this is just me. But I didn't buy her in that stunning white gown. I think it was Bob Mackie. I don't know. But that stunning white sequined gown that she... And she's still doing that kind of head tilt and silly girl kind of look. And that bothered me because I thought, no, I think that she has stepped into a moment here. Um, and I don't think she went into that. I don't. Who knows? I don't think she went into that Harlem hospital with an agenda of tearing down the monarchy. But I think she was. I want to believe she was genuine in that moment, um, but also was happy to put a different face on who those people were internationally. Well, her humanity tore down the monarchy. It was never an intention. It was never an intention directly, you know, that she says, well, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, I think like giving the tapes and things like that, but you know, most of what she did, she was just being herself and that, and, and it was, she was human, right? She was empathetic toward people. She was kind. She was, uh, she listened to people. She was physical with people. Um, and I think just those actions in and of themselves tore down the monarchy or that facade of that, just the, the really cold nastiness of so many of those people, um, just her going out and being herself really tore it down, I think. And I think they did a really nice job showing that where she's just, she's just being her, you know, when she tries to go hug the queen and the queen is stiff as a board and just doesn't know what to do. It's like. Of course, this woman's going to go out and she's going to be cradling her child. And most people are going to respond positively to that. They were going to respond positively to somebody acting like a normal human being. And that grinds their gears. They don't like that. So she tears them down just being Diana. And I love that. Yeah, she's a she's a genius of empathy. Like she's able to sort of perform in front of the camera and look natural, which is not easy to do, right? And and she does it so much better than they do. And I'm thinking about just the timing of this and all the resonances with Meghan and Harry, right? Because so many of the criticisms that Diana got that she was just glitzy, she was just a climber, she was just trying to get attention was said about Meghan, right? That you are somehow just like, you know, trying to show up the rest of the family. But I'm also interested in the ways that um, Diana's, presence was so so strong in that interview right that not only from you know megan wearing her bracelet to all the many times that harry referenced her right and talked about you know how hard it must have been for her to go through what she went through by herself and how grateful he was that he was able basically to be the husband to megan that diana needed at the time like he learns from that that he's going to be the supportive partner um, I saw some headlines that basically said that that interview was Diana's final revenge, which I think is really interesting. But, you know, that, that somehow Harry invoking her example is why he's not going to go down the same path. And I think that's really fascinating. Um, I know we're getting close to the end. I'm going to try to just launch this. and We'll see how we do with it. Um, one of the interviews with Andrew Morton after his book came out, he talked about the fact that Camilla Parker Bowles described Diana as a perfect mouse. And the interview said, interviewer said back to him, the mouse that roared. And he kind of laughed and said, yeah, they kind of got that one wrong. But I think that's a really, the Camilla question is very interesting in this. They didn't include that exchange or anything like it in, in the crown. 
because I think it would have made her too unsympathetic. Um, but I, I heard an interview with the actress who played Camilla, and she said that she imagined her role as a feminist recuperation of Camilla Parker Bowles. And I just for a minute want to talk and get your thoughts on that. I realized that I was team Diana all the way. I just never considered Camilla's perspective at all. I thought she was a horrible, terrible person. What kind of, per what kind of man would choose Camilla over Diana? Cause of course my Diana crush was strong. Right. So like, I never even thought about her and, and that interview made me go, huh, I'm really interested in the ways I unconsciously just took that like other woman, what a terrible person she is team Diana question how do you think the crown did with that question did is this a feminist recuperation of camilla parker bowles a little bit i mean i as i watched it i could see things from her perspective i could see because of the buildup of season three of charles being painted as such a victim of circumstance and because there were all these like love entanglements camilla parker bowles with charles and then anne with Andrew Parker Bowles. I mean, it was a mess. Like, it's just like, you guys, you belong on like Maury Povich or something, right? So they've got all these like love triangle things, but then because of duty, they all just end up marrying the person that they are s supposed to marry, right? And so I always see Camilla as like, she just kind of went along and did what was told of her to do, but that she was, she also just sort of lived her life in the way that she wanted to live it. I mean, you see her very clearly. She's on the phone with Charles and her husband's right there and he knows and she knows and Anne knows. And like this older generation, this, this, not this, these individuals who are kind of like friends with each other and all knew each other, they understood the rules of the game that they were playing and they just played it. And when you have Diana come in, she's from a completely different generation than they are too. She, she and she doesn't know the game. Um, so as much as I am always a team Diana person, I did understand Camilla a little bit. It's like, she's just going along and doing what's always been done. An interesting historical fact about her is that her great grandmother, Alice Keppel was a mistress to the King. I think it was King Edward. So she comes from this line, basically, of women who were mistresses to royalty. And it's so commonplace. I mean, even Elizabeth has that jab toward Philip where she says, don't you have your own ballerinas? I mean, they all know they're having affairs. They all understand that marriage in a royal family is a duty and a job. And like you said, LaShawn, it's not about love. This is like, this is your employment, basically. and so. I did feel that Camilla's image was a little bit rehabbed in the series because I, she, it's almost like she's not really doing anything wrong. She's just kind of living her life and doing what's expected of her. So I don't know if that's feminist, but I think that it does help humanize and explain her behavior. I, I feel like we could do a whole show talking about the portrayal of marriage in the crown. Um, I wrote down last night when I was rewatching some scenes, I love this line that Elizabeth says um, to Charles right before he's getting ready to marry Diana. And she says, all of all our marriages are a reflection on the integrity of the crown. Yowza. And I wrote down in my notes, reality does not equal happiness for these women. It does not equal true love. Marriages survive because people are realists. And that is the message they send over and over. And how devastating 
for those of us who are in happy, loving marriages. <laughs> I was like, that's got to just be like, it, it, Diana clearly meant to love Charles and have the fantasy and, and, and it's not there. It doesn't exist. It can't happen for them. And so I just, you know, I found the portrayal of Camilla to make me think, was Camilla really this awful? But I also saw her as another sympathetic player. Um, I think she, um, I think you're right. I think she understood the system, Hillary, more, certainly more than Diana. And you know, it was like, you don't even talk about the fact that we can't have true love. That's just not even on the table. We're just, this is how we exist. And I found it interesting that it was Camilla in that weird car scene where they're like, in, they sneak off and everybody's in on it, of course, except Diana and, and, and Charles' men are trying to get him to see his mistress. And it's Camilla who's saying to him, don't you understand? Like, this can't, we can't have this fantasy. Like, that's not who we are. And so I'm fascinated to see where they go in season five and six. I certainly saw the media portrayal at the time and was taught by the media to hate Camilla. I don't feel that way at this point. All right. I'm going to suggest that we meet again at the end of season five and have another conversation about the crown. It has been a pleasure yeah. to talk to both of you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm going to wrap us up there. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next time on Swerve South. Thanks, y'all. That was fun. Thank you. All right. It's a date. Season five. <laughs>